take out your scriptures and turn to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at uh, the first 11 verses of chapter 6, which is found on page 1,777 in the Blue Pew Bible. (laughs) Thank you, Mark. It's reminded this week of uh, the movie Rain Man. Remember that movie with uh, Dustin Hoffman and Tom Cruise? Rain Man is famous for making famous the line, 10 minutes till Wapner. Remember that? Raymond is this, uh, played by Dustin Hoffman, is this mentally handicapped yet savant man, grown man, who is obsessed with watching the people's court. And at that time, Judge Wapner was presiding. And he presided over the first of really many courtroom real-life dramas or shows that invited the public for the first time en masse into the courtroom to watch litigation. He was really the first. They could then watch, we could sit on our couches and watch the victories and the defeats. We could watch the ridiculous arguments, the defenses, the silly excuses. And a sad irony that America came to realize is that many of these cases... And even the cases that, that, that drew us in that much more to these types of shows was against family members, mother and daughter, sister and sister, husband and wife. Millions of Americans watched as people that claimed to love each other, embarrassingly yelled and fought and sometimes cursed at each other. We were entertained by those that claimed to have the deepest relationships with each other, showed that silly, petty, Little things could destroy a family. That's what's exactly going on in Corinth. That's what Paul is addressing here today. Brothers and sisters in Christ were dragging each other into the people's court. Look at verse 1 in chapter 6. God's word through Paul says, If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint judges 
even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual and moral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Father God, I pray that you help me to preach this word to your people through the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in the, still in the first section of 1 Corinthians, and in this first section, you can see a divider, actually, if you look at chapter 7, verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 1, we start a second section of 1 Corinthians. He's actually going to answer some questions that the Corinthian church has from, from chapter 7 onward. But before chapter 7, he had heard from some in Chloe's household, Chloe was a, a woman, in the church at Corinth, he had heard from some in, in her household, and we're not sure how, but he'd heard that there were issues in the church. And that's really what he is addressing in the first six chapters of First Corinthians. The issues that he had heard from some in Chloe's household. He had heard about the divisions that we talked about several weeks ago in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, where some were saying, I follow Apollo, some were saying, I follow Peter, some were saying, I follow Paul, and the divisions in leadership, and he addresses those. He also heard about what was happening in chapter 5 that we talked about uh, last week, where somebody was in outward, serious, unrepentant sin in the church, and the church was doing nothing about it. They were just letting it exist. And here he hears about another issue, and that is that brothers and sisters in Christ are dragging each other before the court in Corinth. Christians were suing each other in public. And Paul says that is a big problem. That is a serious problem. And that's our first point, that there is a problem in Corinth. To understand this problem, it's helpful to understand also the Corinthian uh, city itself. In the city was a center part of the city that was called the Agora, or marketplace. And this was a large open area where there were all kinds of markets. That's where you went and you bought your food and your goods on a daily and weekly and monthly basis. And right in the middle of that area was the court. It was called the bima, the bima seat. Maybe some of you have heard that term before. And right there 
in front of everybody in open air was the courtroom. And people that had disputes would come before a judge and a jury, and they would bring their disputes in open air court. William Barclay, who I recommend to you for historical reasons, the commentator William Barclay, but I would caution you the- theologically on following him, but historically he's, he's amazing. And he says this, Corinth was a very litigious society, much like today. People would routinely bring any claim, true or false, that they had before the courts known as the 40. This was 40 citizens of Corinth that would judge that dispute. If the matter was still not settled at the court of 40, it had to be referred to another jury court that consisted of 201 Corinthians. And if the issue was of greater than 50 British pounds, the value of it, then 401 citizens would be the jury. You're starting to get the idea. People were in front of the city of Corinth. So not only were people involved in the jury, but it was also a spectator sport. If you were a Corinthian and didn't have anything to do on that particular day, you could walk into the Agora and sit in on the people's court and watch the litigation go on, watch the disputes pan out. Watch the people bring their grievances against each other. And Paul learns that in the Corinthian church, brothers and sisters were taking each other and litigating in open-air court. And he is, is outraged. I mean, look at what he says in verse 1. He says, if any of you has dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of in front of the saints. In verse 6, he says this, but instead one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. He can't believe that brother and sister are taking their grievances to a public court. So Paul lays down a principle. And that's the next word I'd like you to write down. There's a problem in Corinth. They're taking each other to court, and Paul lays down a principle. Look at verse 4. He says, Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. He's saying, don't take a brother or sister to public court. Deal with it internally. That's the principle. You want to hear it another way? A Christian should never take another Christian to court. A Christian should never take another Christian to court. No doubt, I paused because I wanted to give you ample time to, as my mind did, go to the exceptions, right? What are the exceptions? There has to be some exceptions. This can't be totally comprehensive. Well, there are exceptions to this. I mean, divorce is both a spiritual and a civil matter. You have to go to court. It's civil. It's a civil responsibility. 
has to do with the civil government. Probate court, when someone dies, you go to court. But the principle that is implied here is, is pretty clear. And you can see that through all the exclamation points that Paul has in his language here. You are not to take a brother or sister to court, to the public courts. Now, listen very carefully, because I want to tell you a few things. Paul is not saying that public courts do not have authority in the Christian's life. He's not saying that. Otherwise, he'd be going against Romans 13. Secondly, Paul is not saying that true justice cannot be obtained in the public court. He's not saying that. Justice can be wrought out there. Paul is also not saying that the secular courts never, ever should be used, as we just talked about. Even towards the end of Paul's life, he appealed to Caesar in the, in the public courts, didn't he? But, if you recall, that wasn't believer and believer, was it? Paul also is not passing judgment on the secular courts as inher- inherently evil and unwise. Yet I think what Paul is saying, if you look at verse 4, He is saying, when he says, appoint judges, even men of little account in the church, he is saying that the public courts have limits where godly wisdom is concerned. They do not have the mind of Christ. And what he's saying there is even the simplest believer has more godly wisdom than the Supreme Court if you will. See, there are some truths and justices that the unregenerate mind simply can't grasp. And there's going to be a couple that we talk about here today that, that people in the world simply cannot get their minds around. But more on that later. Now, the principle that God is laying down in his word is a Christian should never take another Christian to public court over personal disputes. Now, this can be incredibly challenging in a bunch of ways. I think of disputes about money. I think of disputes about land. I think of disputes about child custody. Now, hold on, Blake. (laughs) There's some lines you're going over here. There's some lines that you're going over here. You're taking this a little too far, Blake. Well, let me push back a little bit on this. If you're a believer, and you're sitting here, supposedly, you believe in the authority of Scripture. You believe that Scripture has authority in your life. And what I just said, laid out, is the implication of this text. And it's a hard implication because it goes against, it pushes against our cultural understanding, doesn't it? 
MacArthur, in his book, Think, Thinking Biblically, says this, As Christians, we are committed to the Bible as the inerrant and authoritative word of God. We believe that it is true, cover to cover, every jot and tittle. Scripture, therefore, is the standard by which we must test every other truth claim. Let me read that again. Scripture, therefore, is the standard, the canon, by which we must test every other truth claim. Otherwise, the axiom dominates our perspective in all our life. We cannot legitimately claim to have embraced the truly Christian worldview without embracing the complete authority of Scripture. People, this is where the rubber meets the road. You want to know the truth? This is where the rubber meets the road. It's in texts like this that challenge our view of Scripture. We are naturally buffet people. We like to take this and this and this, but I don't like that, and that is too hard, and, and that definitely not. That's how we naturally come out of the womb. God's word is authoritative in our life. Where does your truth perspective begin? Let me ask you that question. It's another way of asking the same thing. With the world or with the word? Because it makes all the difference in the world. The question that this principle begs asking is, do you really believe scripture? That's it. Do you believe that it is authoritative in your life? Will you bow to the principles that we read about in Scripture? Where's the line in your mind between acquiescence and refusal? Is there a line? Let me just draw some lines for you. Okay, land disputes. No problem when it's a little sliver of land. But what about half my property when there's a dispute? Well, how about half my property? And maybe part of my home runs across that property line that's in dispute. Or what about money? Money's a great one. I'm okay bringing it to the church when it's $5. So that's okay. Uh, okay, $100, yeah. $1,000, oh, maybe. $30,000. No. Not here. What about child disputes? Remember 1 Kings 3? There was a child dispute there. Two women brought one child and they both claimed it before Solomon. Think about this for a minute. Why is there even a line that we're letting our minds go to? Why, why is there even a line there where we say, yes under this, no this? I'll try and give you an answer. Because I think that we are catechized more by the world than we are by Scripture. 
I think that we learn from the world what is right and what is the line more from the world than we do from Scripture. We believe the culture, when it tells us you can get justice for everything in the public court system. We believe culture when it tells us the Bible has authority, but only so far in my life. We believe culture when it says the church's authority in your life has, is severely limited. That's the world speaking. Now we hear Paul, driven by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, never take another Christian to court. Settle it internally. And then he explains to them why through a series of reprimands. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. In verse 7, Paul writes, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. God's word is telling us quite clearly that to break this principle means defeat. That's the word that's used there. If you take another brother or sister to court over land disputes or money disputes, other disputes, you're, you're defeated already. And I see three defeats here. The first defeat is that they are sinning. You're defeated because Paul says, that's sin. And I, if you look at verses uh, 9 through 11, you see this implied here. He, he lays down the principle and, and he's reprimanding them. And then he says, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit God, the kingdom of God? He goes on to give a litany, a laundry list of sins. By implication, he's saying, if you take a brother or sister to court, you're acting wickedly. You're acting sinfully. You're acting out of the flesh. Which is where all these other sins come from. Paul's lumping taking a brother to court with acting in accordance with being like an unbeliever. They're acting wickedly, not acting like Christians, not acting, as he says at the end here, as if you were washed, forgiven, sanctified, and justified. Secondly, they're defeated not only because they're sinning, and sinning is defeat, Secondly, they're defeated because they're divided. Paul has already taken four chapters to, to explain how damaging and how unchristian divisions and schisms and disunity are. I want to tell you right now that in this church, we will have disputes. We will have disputes. Why? Because... We're forgiven sinners. We still sin. There's going to be disputes that arise here. And when disputes come, God has given us a process on how to deal with those divisions. In Matthew 18, you go to the brother or sister one-on-one and you try 
and work it out. If that doesn't work, you bring another brother or sister with you and try and work it out. And if that doesn't work, you take it to the church. But when fellow Christians take each other to court, it reveals that they're defeated because they're showing that there's disunity there. And unity is supposed to mark out the church of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that? Unity is one of those things that is supposed to show the world Christ. Think of Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul says, Therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you have been called. Oh, what's it look like, Blake, to, or Paul, to, to walk in a worthy manner? He lists four things. Walk in humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You want to live a life worthy of, of Christ's sacrifice for you? Be humble, be patient, be perseverant, and eagerly desire and seek out unity in the body. Third, and most of all, and probably most pointedly in this, they're defeated because they're not willing to live like Christ. They're not willing to live like Christ. This gets at the heart of what he is saying here in verse 7 where he says, you're defeated already. A believer lives a different life than the world around them. Let me say that again. A believer just simply lives a different life than the world around them. Christ said as much in Matthew chapter 5. He said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, give him your cloak as well. People, that's living differently than the world around us. And that's actually getting at the heart of the issue here in chapter 6. Simply put, a believer is to live a life that is so different, different in worldview, different in values, different in morals, different in righteousness. Leonard Sweet, in his book, Out of the Question, Into the Mystery, he tells a story of a friend of his named Tom Wiles who one day picked him up at the airport, and as he picked him up in the airport, he was picking him up in his new pickup truck. And as he pulled up into the airport, he noticed that there were two huge dents and a large scrape on the side of this new pickup truck. So he climbed into his friend's truck, and he asked Tom what happened. And Tom said, Oh, my neighbor's basketball post fell and made those dents and scrapes. He goes on, he says, you're kidding, how awful, I commiserated with him. This truck is so new, it still smells new. Tom went on, what's even worse is my neighbor doesn't feel responsible for the damage. Rising to my friend's defense, I asked if he had contacted the insurance agency to get him to pay for it. What Tom said next blew me away. He said, 
This has been a real spiritual journey for me. After a lot of soul searching and discussions with my wife about hiring an attorney, it came down to this. I can either be in the right or I can either be in relationship with my neighbor. Can't have both. I can either be in the right or I can be in relationship. That's what it comes down to with disputes in the church, people. You can either be in the right or be in relationship. That's what it comes down to in Paul's mind. Did you see what he said to them? Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? And here's the even harder part, guys. Even if you are in the right, even if you are right, that is my land, that is my property. Even if you're the one being cheated, if you sacrifice the relationship for that, you're in the wrong. It's what scripture is saying. Accept the dent in the new truck and keep the relationship. Accept a bit less money and keep the relationship. Accept having a little less land and keep the relationship. The amazing commenter, Leon Morris, says it very simply. He says, the real victory is obtained by choosing to be wronged and cheated. The real victory. There's a lot of talk in the Christian community about victory, living the victorious life. Let me give you just a little window into that. The victorious life is being willing to being cheated and wronged for the sake of a relationship. That's hard, people. I don't know about you. That is a hard pill for me to swallow. But that's exactly what it came down to with Christ, didn't it? Think about it. First Peter 2 says... He, Christ, committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Christ chose to be in relationship with us rather than being right. Do you see that? As we come up to Easter this in, in about five weeks, read through the Gospels again. And you'll see, he chose to be wronged and he chose to be in relationship with us. That's the heart of the Gospel. He lived a perfect life. He lived a sinless life. That's what Peter is saying. And he was standing before the Sanhedrin, and he was standing before Pontius Pilate, being pointed at as guilty. And you know what he could have done? He could have done this. 
He could have said, you're right, it's not my fault. I'm not guilty. Blake's guilty. Take him. But that's not what he did. He said, I choose to be wronged. Yes, I will take the guilt. Even though I'm righteous, even though I'm right, even though I'm in the right, I choose to be in relationship instead. He chose to be wronged for us. He went to the cross and took the punishment that I deserved, that you deserve. says, going on in 1 Peter 2, he bore the sins on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. That's the gospel. He lived out 1 Corinthians 6. He chose to be cheated. He chose to be wronged so that he could have a relationship with me and a relationship with you. The challenge that this text puts squarely in our lap is, are you willing to live like Christ? That's the application. Are you willing to be wronged financially, wronged relationally, even when it costs you dearly? Are you willing to entrust your righteousness, not to yourself, I'm right, but to him who judges justly? Not get your righteousness now, but later. And that's really what he's reminding us of, finally. Where does the power to live that kind of life, to say, I, I, I will give up the $30,000, even though it's mine, so that I can have a relationship, continue to have a relationship with you. Where does that power come from? Look at verse 11 with me. It comes right here. It says, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. Here Paul is appealing to our gospel memory. You want to know how to actually... Be wronged when you're right. Remember the gospel. Remember what Christ did for you. Remember who Christ made you to be. You were washed. You're forgiven. If you cry out to Christ and confess your sins, the scripture says over and over again, He will forgive you. You will be washed. You're sanctified. You're justified. You're made right before God. When he looks at you, he looks at a perfect, sinless person. A justified person. That doesn't mean you act sinless. It means that's how God sees you. That's the heart of justification. Stephen Um says, the pastor says, we can absorb the cost when we've been wrong because a wrong done to us does not touch our identity unless we fail to believe the gospel. You want the power to live out being wronged and cheated? Remember your gospel identity. 
Remember who you are. Remember who Christ has made you to be. If you're financially wronged, we need to remember that our net worth does not matter. It doesn't define us. If you're relationally wronged, we need to know that our ultimate relationship with God is totally secure. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. If you're cheated out of your reputation, remember who God says you are. You are a son and daughter of the Most High God who loves you and cares for you. Imagine an eight-year-old boy playing with a toy truck and then it breaks. He cries to his parents to fix it, yet as he is crying, his father comes to him and says to him, boy, a distant relative you've never met just died and left you a million dollars. What do you think that child's reaction will be? He'll just cry louder until his toy truck is fixed. He doesn't have enough cognitive ability to realize that his true condition, what his true condition is and be consoled. In the same way, many times as Christians, we lack that spiritual capacity to understand. We want the $30,000. We want that three acres. You've been given everything in Christ. Everything. Remember that. Choose relationship. Father God, I thank you for your word. The Spirit, it's only you that can apply it to our hearts and our minds. Only you. No winsome delivery. No convicting tone. Only you can change our hearts. And we implore you to do that. By the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.